Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. So I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 26. When I finish, I will end with, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. So verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes for me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, all their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Temisa or Temiso. Oh, this, this, they like to over-urbanize this church. Sorry. So uh, for those who are new here, sorry, I had to rebuke someone um, that isn't. This is not part of the sermon. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, particularly good morning to those who are new. My name is Femi, uh, pastor of this church. And we've been doing a series, a sermon series. It's a new one, but this is our third sermon in, in this series. And we call the Idols and the City. And we're particularly trying to show that in a great city like ours, um, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, there are many things that are driving our deep, the deepest motivations for doing what we do. Those things, if they are not God, the Christian God, they are called idols. So the three biggest ones that we find in our city would be the idol of money, the idol of sex, and the idol of power. Those three things. And so we've been looking at them. We're looking through the Old Testament at various passages on, um, on, on these idols and trying to show uh, how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to those things and how, you know, we can work against them. Maybe I should start with this, with this thing. Um, when Francis was telling us a little bit about the church, he said that, um, that there were seven things that we used to build the culture of the church. But if you notice, when, when there was a graphic that was shown there, and those seven things were on the outside. In the heart and the middle of it was something, was the gospel. So we call ourselves a gospel-centered urban church. So the gospel is at the center. But outside, there was another ring that was in between those two. And there were three things that were there. Those were our values. And our values are very short. I'm sure all people should know it, uh, apart from the new people here. Uh, they are what? All right, I think we got it somewhere in the between. Love. Oh, come on. All right, is love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. So it reminds me, you know, when we were coming to plan the church, my wife and I moved back to Nigeria. We planned, we'd written a number of things. Uh, there are a few of us here that I'll come. Uh, can we have coffee together? I spent so much money on coffee. All right, well, let's put that on. You know, trying to sell the vision of the church, and these values were always put out there. And so, you know, obviously you think you and your wife are bought into it. So one day, like a, a year plus into 
the stop. My wife didn't grow up in Lagos, by the way. So she said to me, that, I said, can, I, can we talk? I said, yeah, we can talk. All right, fine, what's it? She said, um, you know this church, eh? That love Jesus. I'm good with it. I, I love Jesus. I'm, I'm down. Love people. You know, my wife is a bit of an introvert. I'm getting there. So this love Lagos, you're on your own. You are, you are just on your own because I cannot love this city. You know, it's just so difficult. I was there to love in this city. You know, she's always been a great support to me, as you can tell. But I know that she's not the only one in this church that probably feels that way. Like, this city is not very easy to love. And there are a number of reasons. One could be the traffic situation. That is a big reason not to love the city, right? Another one could be just all in the traffic. You know, if the traffic is, if you have good neighbors around you, and you know, you say, hey, good morning, my neighbor, you know, uh, you, 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 you expect a good response. Now, but we know with that phrase that I just said, the thing that was responded, to, that's kind of what we get on the traffic, right? Our traffic, you have abuse all over people, you know. It could be the, you know, the healthcare situation is not all that great. So there are many things that you may not really like about the city. But one of the things also that you normally would identify that makes you not love the city, some of us, would be our work. It would be our work. Now, hands up if you've ever felt anything like this. You've ever fought any of these things or you've verbalized them. I'll say all of them and then you can hands up or not. Monday is my least favorite day of the week. My job is a daily slog. My work is fruitless. My job is killing me. I am going to quit within a year. Hands up if you've ever felt any of that. Hands up. Now, two th- yeah, great. Two things. If you didn't put your hands up, you are either dishonest or you work for City Church. <laughs> yes, yes. You know. But this is, the, this is the reality of many people here. The, the job is just like that. It's a daily slog. And you start, some people, they start getting antsy yeah, around 6 p.m. on Sunday evening. You know, all of a sudden, why? Because it's coming, it's coming. Now, many of the reasons this happens is, A, maybe you don't like the pay that you are being given in your, your place of a job. You feel like it's not enough, right? There are few places in this city, I would say, that you feel like, man, they are overpaying me, i.e., city church. <laughs> but it could be the pay, it could be a belligerent boss, it could be um, a recalcitrant subordinate, or it could even just be that the, there's an organizational dysfunction in this organization. So all of these things just, or maybe the distance of where it is. Now, that is true, but there's even another one that sometimes may even be deeper that makes us not enjoy our place of work. And that's what we kind of see in this passage. So again, have you ever thought any of these? I'm going nowhere with this job. My job is aimless. I don't know what I am achieving. I don't know what I am doing here. How many of us have felt that way sometimes? Because you are not alone. In this city, one of the constant refrains that you hear about work, that I've heard about work, is people saying, I'm looking for a job that I can find fulfillment in. And for many, it's nothing to do with the, they're okay with the pay. They feel that it's well-structured. The organization is well-structured. But they just feel a certain level of meaninglessness with their work. And, you know, the passage here, it doesn't, sh- it doesn't so much talk about money, but something that we, many of us use to get money, which is our work. And he says five times in the passages, in, in, the, um, in, the, in this passage that we read, five times this is meaningless. In verse 17, you see it. In verse 19, you see it. In verse 21, you see it. In verse 22, you see it. And finally, in verse 26, you see it there. Meaningless. Well, I hope that at the end of this passage, you won't be left there. Because what we'll find is that if you have an idol driving you in a way in, in, in the place of your work, you would have embraced a worldview and you would have had a hard disposition that brings you to this place. And what we'll find out is that you can still find deep satisfaction in your work even when the circumstances don't change because you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've titled this sermon, When Work Becomes Meaningless, and we're going to look at it through three different um, subsections. 
The first is the result of meaninglessness, the recipe for meaninglessness, and the resolution of meaninglessness. The result of meaninglessness, the recipe for meaninglessness, and the resolution of meaninglessness. So the first one, the result of meaninglessness. I have to tell you, when I was reading this passage and when I have to prepare for, for a preaching, I have to go over the passage over and over and over again. I didn't really like this one. Because the passage is so sad. Like, you know, going over everything, meaningless. What, what, what's the point? Life is meaningless. This guy, after I read it, I said, if I can find this guy, I need to give him a hug. Either give him a hug or maybe refer him to some kind of counseling. The guy was, just look at it. I hated life. I hated all the things I told for. Verse 20, my heart began to despair. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving? You know what, what gives me? Grief, pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This guy is sad. Or you don't think so? This too is meaningless. Over and over, five times. You know one of the things I like about Christianity and the Bible is the brutal honesty about it. I mean, you really wouldn't find any religion like this. Now, many times we misunderstand it. We want to be people of faith, people, generals of faith, you know, we want to be in the house of faith. So what happens is if you are going through a difficult situation, right, Your, you know, container and content, the container always has to look nice. Ah, dear, how are you doing? Ah, I'm fine. No, it's not true. <laughs> you know, I was talking with somebody in the music team this week, and I said, one of the things, reasons why, you know, you won't find people, or if they do, they, they won't do it again. But people leading worship come in and say something like, how are we all doing today? Aren't we so happy to be in the presence of God? Or if somebody is happy, just give the Lord a wiper. And I said, well, that kind of thing should not happen here. Do you know why? Because if we did that kind of thing, truly some people will say, yay. But some people that say, yes. Give uh, somebody shouting hallelujah for Jesus who has been happy. Some people will not want to say it or they will feel forced. Why? I said, when we come to church, and I know this is its condition here this Sunday, some people are anxious because there is an operation that they're about to go through. Some people have just lost their jobs. Some people, have, their marriage is about to fall apart. Some people, they've just heard news that their mother has cancer. So when you come in and you tell somebody, are you not so happy to be here? The person wants to say, no, I'm not happy to be here. And when that person does that, the person is not a person with absence of faith. Do you know how? I know that. Because the person is here. You see, your, dis your display of faith is not, it doesn't come down to whether or not you have problems or whether or not you are sad. It comes down to what do you do with that? Do you go away from God or do you go to God? When somebody goes in prayer to God and says, God, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering like this? Where are you? I can't find you. I need to hear your voice. That person is acting in deep faith. Why? Because the person is not behaving like Job's wife who says, look at what's happening to you. You know what you should do? Curse God and do what? Die. That is, as these things are happening to you, this shows that this God is not a good God, so leave him. The person who is lamenting before God is doing with, before who? God. The person who comes to church, despite the fact that they don't feel like being here, it was not easy to get there, guess where they are? In church. It's an act of faith. And so when you come to the Bible, you see that it's not all the time that people are acting as generals. Sometimes they are looking at their lives and the things they've done in their life and they think it is pointless. And also, be careful how you read the Bible in the different genres. Take the Old Testament, for instance. It's divided into big, three big parts. One is the law and the history of the Israelites from Genesis to about Nehemiah or Esther. The back end is from the book of Isaiah to the book of Malachi, which we call the prophets. In between that is what we call wisdom. Five books, Job to Songs of Songs. And they're not really written the same way. So, for instance, Job 
teaches us about suffering by looking at one man's life and the circumstances, an aspect, not even his entire life, a part of one man's life. It teaches us about suffering by going, zooming into his life. And then the book of Proverbs gives us short, pithy um, uh, sentences about the general rules for living. When you come to Ecclesiastes, you find Baba philosopher, the philosopher who he's looking at life. He's making inquiries about certain things that, are, that have happened in life, and he's reflecting on them, and he's coming to different, he's coming to various conclusions. Do you understand? Philosophical musings about certain things. So here, he takes up work, and he says, when I look at work under the sun, do you know what? It's meaningless. I have to be honest with you. It's just meaningless. That's why he's this sad. And why does he say it's meaningless? Well, he gives us two interrelated reasons. The first one we see in verse 20, yeah, in verse, in verse 20, 21. And he basically says, when somebody, when you work, you've achieved all the things, all the fruit of your labor. You know the problem with it is that you, somebody else inherits what you worked for and what they did not work for. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. I just have to give it to these children. I worked all my life. Just, yeah, just take. And the second is like, unto it. In verse 18. The reason there is that you are leaving that result of your labor to someone whose capabilities you are unsure of. See what he says. And who, uh, um, um, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet, they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the soil. Let me give you an example. How many of us have heard of a guy called John Kerry? Not many of us. Wow. Shows how many of us are not into international politics. John Kerry, under President Obama, was Secretary of State in his second term. Secretary of State is the third highest office in the in, in American government, all right, in the executive, right? So after you have the president, vice president, the next um, uh, senior person is the secretary of state, like a foreign minister. So John Kerry served under President Obama, and he was the secretary of state. Now, he did quite a number of things, but his signature achievement, the thing he was most proud of, the thing he spent the most time on was a deal, a nuclear deal between the Western, uh, Western powers and the nation of Iran. Now, because we don't want nuclear, um, we don't want nuclear arms. More, we don't want more and more nuclear arms in this world, do we? Uh, do we? If you are thinking about yes, don't even say it. All right, because that tells me what kind of person you are. We don't want it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, so Kerry. Now, Iran had been a rogue, has been a rogue nation for a while. And um, one of the ways they tried to stop them from developing their nuclear program was to put heavy economic sanctions. And those sanctions were really, it was really affecting the economy. But it didn't stop the development of that program. So Kerry wanted to work another way around it, that what if we allow, uh, what if we come to a deal where you guys don't develop certain things over a period, I think 10 to 15 years, we will lift up the sanctions, you kind of join the community of nations and hopefully that would deter them from doing these things. So that was a very difficult thing. So Kerry poured his life into it. And one particular day, I think in 2016, they announced the deal. It was the biggest news around the world that time. And yet, Kerry left, and then another person came in. Kerry said this was the most significant and important, the best deal that's ever been signed in international relations. And then the person that was coming, the president that was coming, and said, this is the worst deal that's ever been signed in human history, ever. And with one fell swoop, with one signature, the United States pulled out of the Iran deal. Now think about that. All of John Kerry's life's effort, all the skill, all the labor, all the sleepless nights, all the negotiations, all the research, everything he poured into it, and he left it onto somebody whose skills and his, whose capabilities he did not know. And what did the person do? He's pulled out. That's what this person is saying. That in that, when I think about this long-term thing, this thing in long-term, what's the point of what I'm doing? 
It's not good that I'll, not good that I'll leave me. I'm going to die. And eventually, somebody may die. I'll just cancel it. Certain very rich people that we know today, well, that my parents knew in the 50s, 60s, you just know of them. You know the name. But the parents' wealth that was there, the children just used it and they just squandered the whole thing. So at the end of the day, he's saying, what is the point of all of it? And I don't know, many of us are not at the tail end of our lives when we have to reflect on that. But you may be thinking about your work now. What is the purpose of this job that I am doing beyond here? And when you actually honestly think about it, there's somewhat no point. And this can bring you to where this guy is, a place of despair. Now, the question is, how did this guy get here? Before we can talk about how do we get out of it. How did he get here? That brings me to my second point. The recipe for meaninglessness. All right, I'm going to do another name thing again. How many of us know this name? Fumi Adewe. Oh, wow. You see, this is a prime example of somebody who's, who has toiled and toiled. And now nobody even, because no one remembers. Fumi Adewe was one of the biggest names on NTA, when NTA was still a good NTA. One of the biggest names on NTA, late 80s, early 90s. Right? Fumi Adewe, okay, okay. You don't know Fumi Adewe. Let me sing a song for you, because you love hearing my singing. My mama and papa, they love each other. And they don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama says to papa, this food is tasty. There's, a part, there's another one. This food is tasteless. And she carried Omorogu and slapped on his head. But that, we won't talk about that one. Family Menu was a program. It was a program on TV back in those days. Um, the best part I loved, uh, the best part, and it's also the worst part, the best part of Family Menu was the end. You know why? At the end, that's when you see the sumptuous meal that she has just cooked. Very nice. You, be, you know this kind, you'll be looking at me. Your, mouth, your lips will... Oh, yeah. Very nice. But why is it the worst part? They will bring like four people to come sit down and eat, and you won't be there. <laughs> it's at that point that you just be looking, ah, this is my mom's own food self. It's not all that great. You know, in the last service, my mom was around, so I couldn't. But this one, ah, this is my mom's food. Look at this. Look at that one. But it was the shortest part of the, of the program. The longer part of the program was when the ingredients were introduced to you, and then also the process through which those ingredients go through to get to the end. That was the main program. The ingredients and the process, the cooking process. That is what, those two together is what we call a recipe. We see the recipe and we see the end goal. How did this man that is reflecting on these things, how did he get to such a state? There's a recipe. It has two ingredients. The first one is a worldly worldview. The second one is a worldly heart. A worldly worldview and a worldly heart. Now, what's the process of cooking them together. Let's take the first one, a worldly worldview. Now, if you notice, he says this thing about under the sun. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun. Verse 18, I hated all the things that are told for under the sun. Verse 19, uh, the, 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 the toil, my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. Verse 20, so my heart began to despair over all my toil and labor under the sun. And finally, in verse 22, what do people get for the toil and anxious striving with which they labor? under the sun. Over and over and over again here. Actually, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that phrase, under the sun, 27 times. What does it really mean? Well, maybe I can illustrate it with a particular clip that we'll soon play. All right? Now, in that clip, let me tell you what happens. For the background, there's a lady there. She's about to get married to a guy. No, she, she falls in love with a guy she hopes to marry to. But now, if she has to marry that guy, she has to move from her environment. And her environment is vastly different from the environment that that guy grew up in. There are two very different environments. So there's a counselor here that is trying to convince her that don't go into that person's, don't get married to this person. Why? Because these environments are very different. The environment that you are in here, I promise you, is way better. This guy's environment is not good, so he tries to convince her. So let's hear what he has to say. I'll swim up to his castle, then Flounder will splash around to get his attention, and then Down we'll go... Down here is your home. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You 
dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. Some people want to keep hearing it. No. And the point of this is actually that I just like hearing this song. I didn't, there's no, there's no point I'm making. No, but actually, I think it makes a point for us very. If you notice, this Jamaican crab is trying to tell her, don't go. And why is he trying to tell her to go? So she. Is, she's a, uh, a mermaid who has fo uh, fallen for, okay, she's a mummy water, <laughs> all right. She's falling for, um, uh, this, this is how you, you, you initiate our children, you make mermaid, mermaid. <laughs> you don't know this thing, I'm telling you. All right, so she's falling for a human being, and now, obviously, she's going to get married to him. She wants, she has to be a human being. And the guy is saying, <laughs> do you know what it is to live up there? This place is way better. Look at the world around you. Right here on the ocean floor. Did you hear that? Look. What do you look? Look. See. View. The world. View the world. World view. See, there's a world view here. And this world view here is we are devoting full time to floating. That is, in other words, we, are, we live a carefree life. In contrast to the world up on the uh, uh, um, 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 out in the slave where they slave uh, out in the sun where they slave away, he's saying that when you live here, there's a different thing, a different worldview that creates a different style of life. If you go and marry this person, they have a different thing here that is going to create another style of life. And notice how he described, metaphorically described. Life where he was. What did he call it? Under, under the sea. I hear the writer is saying, no, under the sun. There is a worldview that comes when you see life, the life that you and I are living, as just under the sun. What does that worldview consist of? It means that the sun acts as sovereign. When I speak about Queen Elizabeth as the sovereign over the United Kingdom, what am I saying? I am saying that the extent of her rule is, be, is across certain borders, where we find England, Scotland, Wales, and the Northern Ireland. Beyond that, she is no longer sovereign. That is, in other words, the scope of her dominion is, a, a, is related to her sovereignty. And in the same way, saying that meaning can only be constructed under the sun, wherever the sun shines. That is the only place where we find meaning. That is the only place where we find judgment for bad deeds. That is the only place where we find reward for good deeds. Under the sun. And so his reflection is about work done under the sun. Life under the sun means that you do not have any concept of eternity or the afterlife. Why? Because the sun does not shine there. When somebody is dead... What we see is a body, a body that goes into skeletons under what? The sun. So the work that you do here is so important for the here and now. Beyond this, mm -mm. So this guy is thinking, what is, what's the point? I have labored, I have gotten all these things, I've built this mansion, but it's not going to go beyond this life. So what really is the point of it all? And I ask you, is this how you live your life? Is this why the fact that you are not married, you feel like, man, if I don't get married like this, life, it don't be for me. So that when you go for all those parties and they say, ah, they're not a deal, you know, your auntie is coming, you, two, you, you embrace those things. Like, it's true, hey, 35, hey, 38, hey, 30. Because there is no marriage outside of the song. When you live life under, as, when your life is lived as under the sun, then created things become the most important things in your life. 
Now, closely related to this is a, the disposition of your heart. If under the sun means that there cannot be meaning, full meaning, ultimate meaning, beyond this life, because nothing else exists beyond this life, then there's a heart condition that follows that as well. If you notice in verse 26, he says that the people who are, um, uh, uh, the people who experience the things he's talking about, he calls them sinners. By sinner, what does he mean? Now, a sinner, let me give you a small definition. A sinner is literally to have a heart condition that causes you to miss the mark regarding God's commands and his purposes. To have a heart condition that causes you consistently to miss the mark regarding God's commands and purposes. I don't know how many of you have um, uh, played darts. Or how many of us have shot an arrow? Uh, you know, practice archery, you know. So, you know, like me and Zeno and, uh, and Lola, you know, like when I used to, sometimes you have to, you know, you know this thing, like you have to set it at like 20 meters, you know, just be able to see. And, and when, when I used to fire, usually we have uh, rings like this, rings, and then there's something in the middle there. If you get that one in the middle, we call it the bull's eye. Now, it's only professional archers that normally get the bullseye. So usually I'll take like 12 shots. I normally get by the bullseye maybe 11 times, that kind of thing, <laughs> right? But that one time when I didn't get it, you know what I did? I missed the mark. By missing the mark, I transgressed it. I sinned. God set commandments, and when we violate, when we don't get the, when we don't hit the mark on the commandments, we say we have sinned. But what makes us to consistently sin is to, um, our heart is in a condition that continues to make us miss the mark. That's a sinner. But in this context, it's not so much just the commandments, because we are speaking about wisdom here, not so much morality. Don't forget that every command is tied to a purpose. I could say that I sinned against not meeting the bullseye because the purpose of shooting is to meet what? The bullseye. You cannot say that if you came in here and you put this, this um, chair on your head and the chair was too heavy, you say it's a bad chair, is it? Huh? Solomon, Abby? If you came in here and you put the chair on your head and the chair was really, really hurting, you said the chair is a useless chair. Why? The purpose of the chair was not to put it on your head. Was it? The purpose of the chair is to sit down. There is a purpose. So commandments come with purpose. And in this context, when it says that they are sinners, it's because they've missed the mark regarding God's purpose for work. This person has embraced work to do something for himself or herself that work was not defined to do. Do you know what that person has done? The person has used work to identify, to, to identify themselves. Work became the strongest or the highest point of his identity. Let me explain why. Look at verse 17. How does verse 17 start? So I hated... So I hated what? I hated... What does he hate? He hates life. Look at verse 18. What does it start with? I hated what? All the what? That I toiled for. What does he hate? All the things that he had what? toiled for. In other words, all the things he had toiled for had become life to him. His life, the sum total of his life was what he worked for. His work's results had become what defined him. It literally was his life. And whatever defines life for you, you know what it is? It's your God. Some of us have not succeeded we didn't really succeed in academics. You know how it is. No, you did when you were in Elele or you were in Ogbomosho. You know, at that time, you were a local champ, right? Everything you were, you were, you were always, you know, I used to get credit, so it was credit, but all the other people were getting peace. So you were a local champ. You now came to Lagos. You came to Unilag to now study. And you now started seeing that ah, even getting A didn't make you the top of the class. And so you said, who even cares about these academics? Me, I can run, sir. I can run. I know that this person, you, eh, you can, whether you're on, you know book, but can you run like me? 
And if you are not one of those kind of people that always ace academics and also ace sports, i.e., me, <laughs> to which my wife is saying, this guy sings at so many now. <laughs> He's just lying up. So what do we do? We don't succeed at something, but the things that we feel we have skill for, that's what we use to identify ourselves. Maybe I'm not in a very good, I'm not in a relationship. There, nobody's coming to meet me, blah, blah. But you know what I can do? I can work. And so all of a sudden, your boss telling you that thing you did, that document you submitted was fantastic. You are happy all day. The next thing, next week, he now says, ah, but the number of your sentences there, there were typos. And I don't really like how you went about this thing. You are what? Sad all day. This is what he meant by, he says, anxious striving. Look at it. Verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and the anxious striving? You're like this. You're like that. You're like this. Like, why? Because your work, the results of your work, has become the measure of your life. And when this happens, Bible says you're a sinner because you have missed the mark regarding the purpose for work. When this consistently happens you will find yourself in despair. Your work, that is meant some people were working to get fortune. You know what happens? They eventually got the fortune. The fortune did not bring them satisfaction, and that's why you can't, you can't summarize with this guy and say, ah, this work is a great misfortune. Verse 21. Beware of idols. You know why? You know why idols make poor substitutes for gods? Because they overpromise and always underdeliver. If you turn work to being the measure of your value, the thing that identifies you, the thing that gives you weight, you would consistently strive anxiously. And even if you get the thing you think the work was meant to give you, it doesn't give you that satisfaction and you enter despair because the, your God has not provided you with the thing that you wanted it to give you. That is a problem. So how do we get out of this? Because we don't want to end in all gloom, do we? All right, final point. The resolution of meaninglessness. The resolution of meaninglessness. Because it's not all gloom. You see, you're asking yourself, can my work or my life matter beyond here and under the sun? He actually says it's possible. He says, you can get satisfaction, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their own toil. Wow. So how do we get this satisfaction? Maybe I should change the circumstance. Change. Get a new job. No, the one that is paying you right now, you can't improve on it. If you go, oh, it's by changing the things around me. No. But remember, how did we get to this point? We said the recipe was wrong. So if we're going to change and get to the point of satisfaction, what do we need to do? Change the recipe. Right, so let me give you two new ingredients for a better recipe that brings about resolution. One, a, god, a godly worldview. Two, a godly heart. Quite innovative, isn't it? The bad one is a worldly worldview. Yeah. A godly worldview and a godly heart. Now, notice when it talks about satisfaction in verse 24, so the person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. So it's possible. How possible is it? Well, how do we know? He says, this too, I see. I what? See. In other words, he's saying, there is a way to see under the sun. But now, I am seeing differently. You're going to have to change the worldview. If you've embraced a worldview that says that this life is all that matters, as we said, eventually it leads to despair and misery. But there is another kind of worldview. You, will, you see, the problem with things under the sun, if you achieve both for a moment, and I'm not trying to say that some of us here at this current moment, you're not enjoying your jobs and it's giving fulfillment, but if you continue this way, I can assure you, after a period of time, you will not find that satisfaction. All God needs to do is to elongate the time. One of the worst matches I ever watched in life, right, in life, was in, um, it was in 1999. It was the Champions League final. It was between Manchester United and Bayern Munich. 
Now, I say this because 999 was a great effort for the team I support, which was Arsenal. But Manchester United always, you know, they, in the league, they won by a single point, even though we are by far the better team. If you say no, meet me after this service. Arsenal were a better team, but we lost. Then the FA Cup. We should have won the FA Cup. We played with them semi-finals, you know. They still say it's the greatest match that's ever been played in England, but we lost. We lost to a miraculous goal by um, Ryan Giggs, even though we missed a penalty in the 90th minute. Do you see why Arsenal should have been? All right. So it now comes to the Champions League final. Now, let me tell you why it was the worst match of my I can't believe it. I'm ashamed to say this. I supported my on the day. I know. Now, if you were a Bayern Munich supporter, Bayern Munich, how did it start? The game was a dreadful game. Rekin and Foscos couldn't play, so they had to rechange. Kine. If you're a Bayern Munich supporter, everything was going great. In the sixth minute, they got a free kick. Mario Basler scored the goal. Fantastic. After that, Bayern Munich controlled, when you say controlled, controlled the game. They hit the post. They hit the bar. Everything was being controlled. By the time you get to the 87th, 88th minute, the then UEFA president called uh, Leonard Johansson. He was leaving his seat because they wanted to start the, the procedure for Bayern to be presented. They had already put the ribbon of Bayern's colors on the cup. 87th, 88th minute. And 89th minute, the Bayern fans were just singing. Singing, jubilating. 90th minute, it was still 1-0. Now, in between, towards the end, Manu had brought on two substitutes. One, Teddy Sheringham. The, the second was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And in the 91st minute, Manu had a corner. He came in. He wasn't well taken. Somehow the ball rebounded. Who does it land to? Teddy Sheringham. Substitute. Bang on. Go. Hey. You can imagine a Bayern supporter. Two minutes after that, because there were three minutes of it time. Man, you get another corner. They cross in. He hits somebody. Whose leg does it get to? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Go. Man, you won. As in, there's a guy called Sami Kufo, Bayern uh, 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 defender. The guy went on the guy. He was hitting the guy. I can't. If you were a Bayern Munich supporter, if a football match is for 89 minutes, you, you have every reason to celebrate. But if a football match is 90 minutes plus stoppage time, you have to wait to the end before you celebrate. When you adopt a life under the sun, look, it is just like 89 minutes. It doesn't mean that it gives you meaning in this period that you will be celebrating at the end of the day. You need to change your worldview. You need to expand it because if you don't embrace a worldview that views eternity as reality, you won't be celebrating at the end. And so this guy said, I have to see beyond this. Because reality as we see it, is not only con it only, does not only consist of the things that we can observe. If it is only things that we can observe, you will misconstrue the truth. So for instance, if I ask you, there's a guy, uh, maybe you're a materialist here, you only believe in the things you see. How, do you know this guy, Nabo Napoleon Bonaparte? Say, okay, where, where, where do you know him from? He said, um, I know him. Uh, have you seen him before? He said, no. Uh, where do you see him? Is in the book. Sorry, are human beings inside books now? You can't observe Napoleon Bonaparte. History tells you that he existed, and we believe it. In other words, knowledge, the only form of knowledge is not scientific materialism, the thing that I can observe. There are other forms of knowledge. And so this guy is saying, the mere fact that we cannot see eternity doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because if you don't have a good scope of knowledge, you will start to misconstrue, misconstrue the truth. You can see what you observe here, but that doesn't mean this is the only truth that there is. If, you, if your truth about work is only constructed as under the sun, you will miss the truth about your work. So, so what did he see? He said, this satisfaction that comes, I see that this too comes from the hand of who? In other words, he moved from a world where the son is sovereign, and now he moves into a world where God is sovereign. And when God shows up, you know what shows up? Satisfaction shows up. When God shows up, enjoyment. He said, I can enjoy my work. When God shows up, happiness in the toil already shows up. But how does it happen? Because I can call God all the ones. How does this happen? 
You know somebody else that did God's work? The person that did God's work more than anyone is the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he said, many times he would summarize all that he came for or came to do as what? I came to do the work of God. I just came to do the work of God. That's all. Imagine your life. That's it. I came to do the work of God. Now, part of that, a lot of that was to bring in the kingdom. So he, will, he says in the beginning of his ministry, he began proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he would demonstrate the signs of the kingdom. So when people were sick, he was healing them. Right? Where people were lame, he made them walk. Where people were blind, he made them see. And so you think, ah, Jesus has come. Great revival. People will be following after him. You know most of the people in Jesus' life that he preached to did not follow him. Do you know that? You see, a few people, yeah, the fishermen followed him. There are a couple of disciples, but most people weren't following Jesus. Even the ones you think were following him, when Jesus fed 5,000 people, when he gave them tuna sandwich, right? Not the kind of tuna sandwich that we have here, that the fish is, I don't even know whether it's butter, it's tuna that is there. Not that kind. He gave them real tuna. Like, like there were baskets full. That shows you how much fish was there. They still had baskets full of fish there. So Jesus gave them the thing. After that, would they not be following him? What do you think they, they, that, they said? Bros, can you give us more fish? Can you give us more bread? That's what they were looking for. They completely missed the point. The point he was trying to make was, I am the bread of life. But they missed the point. Many people were following Say, Ah, you're like a magician. Show us a sign. When he came into his hometown, you know, like, I love the way Solomon is dressed. This is the way he dresses if he's going to his hometown. You understand? Dressed like a chief. Jesus came into his hometown. The homeboy has returned. You think they're all going to follow him? He said he couldn't do miracles there. Because they could not believe. They did not believe him. In some sense, Jesus' work was meaningless under the sun. He was not a success. People, he didn't have scores of people following him. Even when he healed people on the Sabbath day, isn't that the time for them to see that the Sabbath was meant for man and man not meant for Sabbath? Do you know what they said they wanted to do? Immediately after the disciples put on how they would kill him. Meaningless under the sun. Oh, maybe everything is going to turn around. Maybe eventually God is trying to teach him patience and eventually it's going to turn around. Eventually, where did Jesus' life end? On a cross. Shameless cross. What did he achieve? Did the kingdom come? He was now on a cross. Would you, at that point of the cross, where Jesus' friend had, the friends had abandoned him, Peter, that said, I will never, I will follow you to death. He denied him three times. His, his family, nowhere to be found. Only his mom and, some of, and, and, and two other women, they were at a distance. Everybody abandoned him. There was no uprising. There was no revival. John the Baptist's cousin had been killed. How many people believed in him? He was now there on a cross, shamed, shameful. A shameless death on the cross. Even God said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Excuse Jesus if he had ended his life with these words. All the days, all my days, my work is grief and pain. Even at night, my mind do not rest. This too is meaningless. But at the point of death, Jesus did not say that. Why didn't he say that? Because Jesus knew that this death was not all that there was. There was a resurrection. In other words, Jesus knew that this death was not going to end here, but my death was the death of death itself. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And the throne of God is not under the sun. In other words, when Jesus was going about his work, he always had an eternal mindset in view. If your work, if your life consists only in the things that are here, it will be meaningless. But if you see, like Jesus, that there is an eternity in view, and, mind you, an eternity that Jesus has secured because of his resurrection. What does the resurrection mean in one part? If the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, consists, if it's like a company, a company where people are they're given ID cards, and the ID cards, your number is according to your entry, when did you come into that company? Jesus will have number 001. 
because Jesus Christ has risen, all those that believe in Jesus Christ will also rise again. And this is the work through which God has decided to define you, not the work that you are currently doing. God chose to define us as Christians through the most meaningful work that has ever done, a work that was a total, complete success. A work that nobody can say, ah, this thing, uh, would somebody else come and take it after this time? No, because Jesus will never die again. Why don't you choose to define yourself, not by the things that you do in this world, but by Jesus, whoever lives? When you do that, you will see that you yourself, it's not whether or not we find meaning in what we do. It's whether we are meaningful in ourselves. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that we are. You see, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the longest passage on the resurrection. Paul says this. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Therefore, at the end, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, there was a godly worldview, but there's also a godly heart. A godly heart is those who move from being sinners and they become those who please him. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. If you find your identity in Christ, your work is not where you try and find your meaning. Your work will be an offering unto God, what you do to please him. In Colossians, it says, don't work for people, but do your work as who? As unto the Lord. It's there we find happiness. It's there we find satisfaction. It's there we find fulfillment. Not in what we do first, but in who we are because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.